Um, Good morning. We're reading from Acts 8, starting at verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the power of God. They followed him because they because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. We are continuing through Acts. Thank you, Alan, for reading this next passage. I want to read you uh, a poem. It's by a poet I love because he's a farmer poet, and I just love that. And his name is Wendell Berry. You might know his name. This is the poem. In the dark of the moon, in flying snow, in the dead of winter, war spreading, families dying, the world in danger, I walk the rocky hillside sowing clover. Now, Barry wrote this in February 2 in the actual dead of winter in 1968 at the height of civil unrest around the Vietnam War and civil rights protest. This is his generation's 2020, okay? He was writing this at that time and he goes, in the dark of the moon, I walk the rocky hillside sowing clover. What does he mean? What's clover? For a farmer in the winter to sow clover is to sow a cover crop that will keep the soil rich and prepare it for spring planting. There's so much in this metaphor of sowing clover. And I think of this text in Acts 8 and how last week we talked about moving from pain to joy with Jesus. And what is the outcome of this section? What happens in this city? Let's reread this, this preamble to our text. Now, those who were scattered because of persecution, remember, 
went about preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So there was much joy in that city. In the dark of the moon, the Christians persecuted and scattered in threat of their life are sowing clover. Today, do we want to be like Barry's farmer in this poem? Do we want to be like that? If so, we must have original faith which results in original hope. Another way of saying that is we must have personal faith. It must be ours that results in personal hope. Acts 1.8 has kind of been our thesis for this passage. Let's see if we can get it to come up here. There we go. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus's proclamation over his disciples. This is what's going to happen is they will be witnesses. The only way you can be a witness is to witness out of experience. I can't say I saw that guy commit that crime if I didn't see him do it, right? Our witness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes from an experience of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a personal faith. It's an original faith. I think sometimes we think that we can read the Bible listen and mimic the things that people tell us to do in it, and that somehow we will be witnessing to others about the faith. But we, people can see right through that. We are witnessing our faith to them. And they're watching us. And they're watching the moments in between. And they're asking, is this your faith or is just this just a faith? Is this something you read about in a book or is this something you live and do every day? It must be studied and it can be studied, but to study it is not enough. It has to be developed inside. Another way of saying this is you can't borrow your faith. My faith must originate out of a response of God's love to me and it must result in my commitment to him. The the word testament in the Bible means testimony. So if you think about it, the Old Testament and the New Testament are God's testimony, his personal revealing, his story, his eyewitness account, his autobiography about life with mankind. The old autobiography and the new autobiography, the old testimony, the new testimony, there's differences because of the appearance of Jesus Christ and his life. And then inside the stories of this Old Testimony and this New Testimony are writers and characters who are revealing their personal testimony of their experience with God. So it's both. 
Both things are happening. We're getting two personal eyewitness accounts, God's revealed word and people's revealed word. And they are, because these people are holy and committed to God and one with him and in him, as Jesus would say, these testimonies have the same truth to them. And often with the, the, the human story, we see a personal transformation happen from pain to joy because of the Trinitarian God. So as we look at the story of Simon today, the big major theme for us is going to be realizing that we must have original faith. You can't photocopy your faith. The problem and the reason that we need our faith so deep down inside so that in the winter we can be sowing clover is because we are in just incredible challenges in our day and age as Christians. I'm talking about our church, but I'm also talking about the church. I'm talking about especially the American church right now, which is seeing dwindling numbers year by year of people who claim they have religious convictions, who claim that those religious convictions are actually orthodox Christian views. They may say I'm a Christian, but when they actually get questioned on what they believe, they're not a Christian. And so what we're finding is that we are entering a time of probably a long winter in some senses. And we must remember that Jesus was king and Jesus was triumphant, but he did that because he was a suffering servant. And this is an aspect of Jesus's life that sometimes we just kind of want to ignore. Isaiah 65 talks about Jesus as the suffering servant. Here's how it starts. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spoke, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. You say, well, yeah, great. Jesus suffered for me. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering for me. But Isaiah 65 goes on. In verse eight, it says, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster of grapes, and they say, do not destroy it for there is blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. What is it? What, wait, what does that mean? In Isaiah 65, before Jesus has come, there's already talk of the servant, which is Jesus and then talk of his servants being restored into Mount Zion. Maybe when you heard that line, new wine, you thought what I thought, which is of John 2, Jesus at the wedding in Cana, 
where he says, I cannot put new wine in old wineskins. What he means is out of Israel will come the church, but it won't look like the Jews. And they will dwell in Zion, in Christ, which includes his suffering. That means that in verse 8 and 9, what I read, what the servants will do, sounds pretty good. If they're going to dwell in Mount Zion, that puts them in the position of the suffering servant in the first five verses. That means as the church, when we are living in Christ, we will say, here I am, here I am to a nation that is not called by my name. We will spread out our hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, to a people that will provoke us to our faces continually. Or maybe we will be those people. But either way, even if we dwell in Zion, we are destined in this life to take on the mantle of the suffering servant. We in this church right now, I'm just thinking about this. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. We're ready. And part of the difficulty is we're like, when? Like we're ready for people. But this is part of Jesus training us in our witnessing. This is okay. This is not his plan forever. So before I get into the Simon, the story of Simon, I want to relate the situation in the story of persecution to ourselves in our current climate, which is one where as Christians, we are facing the crumbling of Christendom, the crumbling of the Christian framework around American society. This is prophetic word. It's not original to me. Like Christianity is going to change in our lifetime dramatically in this country, dramatically. So we need to be ready for that. No longer do we have any sort of high moral standing. No longer do we have any sort of status by being called a Christian. No longer is society assuming a Christian framework around their thinking. Culture as we know it is changing. And we may feel like we look outside and we see ruins. Ruins of what we had once dreamed of. Ruins of what could be. And so we may resonate less with persecution right now and more with the sense of cultural devastation. I was talking to a friend who was telling me the story of a Crow Nation's tribal leader named Plenty Coos was his name. Now Coos is C-O-U-P-S, and that means what we think it means, right? Which is like a takeover, a victory, military victory. He was named because as a child, he was said over him, you will have many brave achievements. Out of your bravery, you will have many victories. The Crow Nation is now a small reservation in southern Montana. They don't have the lifestyle they once had. The buffalo do not roam free. At a young age, Plenty Coos had an experience of vision that non-Native American people would ultimately take control of his homeland in Montana. But his ideas were so far-fetched at that time that many believed they wouldn't come true. But when they did, they started to believe him. This is the story, by the way, of the prophets in Israel. This is the story. They said, our city is going to fall. 
And everybody goes, it's good, it's tough. And they go, what about these prophets? And they go, oh no, we're gonna be great. Everything's great, keep going. And they go, these are the good prophets. These ones listen to God, you don't. But once it started coming true, they realized who the true prophets were. So this tribal leader, I'm writing here a quote, reading a quote. He always felt that cooperation would benefit his people much more than opposition. He very much wanted the crow to survive as a people and their customs and spiritual beliefs to carry on. His efforts on their behalf ensured that this happened and he led his people peacefully into the 20th century. Well, uh, Harvard University Press book by Jonathan Lear called Radical Hope, Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation explores this idea of this vision that Plenty Coups had about an impending devastation of his culture, a sense in which everything that meant something to him would begin to unravel and eventually disappear. And what hope would be left? And he says it raises profound ethical questions that transcend the time of Plenty Coups and challenge us all. How should one face the possibility that one's culture might collapse. Now, I'm not making an endorsement right now of Plenty Coup's beliefs, but I am making a pretty significant recommendation that we think about his character, that we think about the resolve and the faith that one would have to continue when other Native American tribes, by the way, are going down in glory and flames, going down in big battles and saying, we stand for our beliefs and we're going to oppose white man. And he says, that's foolishness at this point. We're definitely all going down. And I love my people and I cherish their life. And I want to chart a way of hope and life for my people. The prophets had the very same message for Israel when Babylon invaded. They said, don't do stupid stuff. Don't make alliances with Egypt. Don't, don't try and win this battle. You can't win. I've heard a revelation from God. You will not win this. So this is not praise for white men conquering the Native Americans any more than it would be for those prophets to praise Babylon for conquering them. The inevitability of something is just what it is. And Israel realized in some part, as they listened to the prophets, and the prophets said it plainly, this is happening as a judgment from God because of the devast this devastation of the temple is a result of the abject failure of us as a people to honor God. And we will be led into captivity. They had failed the covenant promise with God to keep his temple holy and pure. Zedekiah said, uh, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah in Jeremiah 34, he says, Thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the land of the king of Babylon. He shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. Expect it to take time. Don't expect what the prophets just who just say what we want to hear. Don't expect it to be a short, temporary thing, is what Jeremiah is saying. This is why he says the line that I've said before, build houses and live in them. Remember, I've talked about this from Jeremiah. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons of daughters. 
Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah is not saying adopt Babylonian culture. He's saying, don't expect this to just be a little blip and then we're going to get out. Don't just take your pup tents in and live nomadically. Make a life for yourself. Buy houses, invest in land, do whatever you can to make an actual stable life in a new, completely new cultural environment. We, many of us in this room have kids. We are thinking, how do I parent? How do I raise my kids? What world do I raise them to expect? And it's not the world of our past. That's the same thing Plenty Coos was facing. He was going, what world do I raise? How do I make alliances? How do I understand the way of the white man so that I can live within the world that the divine is bringing to me? Even if it means never having again what I had when I was young, never having that same landscape. I'm going forward into something new. So there must be some deeper truth to Christian living other than triumph in our time and our ways being the ways of culture. We may wish for that culture to happen and we can live it out to the extent we can, but we can't just give up or go down in glory fighting and destining our own people and our own children to death because we are not listening to what God is doing. So in some sense... I can't say what God's doing. I'm not a prophet that can say he's bringing judgment. But in some sense, I can say it doesn't hurt us at all to realize that some of this may be a judgment on Christian culture. And we see that Christendom is vanishing. So maybe instead of having the view like the triumphalists that have this view that we have a new King David and he's going to rise and he's going to restore Jerusalem, and listening to all the prophets who say, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, we'll be great. Instead, maybe we should listen more to the prophets. Perhaps all of us should take some time to read and study more of the prophets who talk about what it's going to look like to live a life in exile, which is the life we have been living in many ways in Portland as Christians for a long time. But it's the way all of American Christians will be living 20 years from now. In fact, it's bigger than Christianity. I think that if you raise a kid, even as a non-Christian, we are facing a world where the next generation is rising up with a general view of hopelessness about the future. I was just reading an article in the New York Times and it was saying that smoking was on the rise in New York City and LA. Had images of all these teens smoking, right? All the images was kind of like the James Dean cool look that they were all adopting. But as they interviewed them, of course, yes, every generation, it's always about image, right? So some of it was about image, but they found it was also about nihilism. They said, there's fires raging north of us. The pandemic's on, there's wars and rumors of wars. There's nothing to hope in. And so what do they do? They take their hopelessness and they turn it inward and just become self-destructive. What's the point? What do I need to live for? Why, what, why does it matter if I'm going to die a little bit sooner? I don't think any of us are going to live very long. But, but see, Plenty Coups shows us a model of saying, 
Don't believe just what you see. Live with an original hope. Trust in the dream that you had and the vision that was given. And as Christians, we can listen to that, even though he has a totally different spiritual framework. We can listen to that character and we can say, that helps me understand the original hope and faith that the prophets had, that could give hope and faith to the people of Israel, that gets them through exile. And we can start to practice that because some of us are no different than those nihilistic teenagers. We wake up in the morning and we, we get to this point where we go, sink full of dishes, who cares? What's the point? Just another day of COVID school. They might even be home next week. Like, you know, like what's the point, right? We just start giving up. And if you are no different than those people in those images smoking, then ask yourself, what good is your faith? What good is my faith if it doesn't bring hope? Plenty Coos was also named Bull Who Goes Against the Wind. It's interesting to hear a name being called, to him being called Bull Who Goes Against the Wind. You would think that that would be like the, the tribal chieftain who's going down in the blaze of glory against the white cowboys and, you know, military, you know, invasions. And they're just going down. That's the one who goes against the wind. But no, what it means is that Plenty Coos way was harder. Going and saying, this is inevitable. How do I make a way through hopelessness? How do I make a way through the devastation of my culture? Is actually the act of bravely going against the wind. To go down in the blaze of glory is actually super egotistical. It brings a lot of glory to me. I get to be the martyr. Look, I'm so brave. But actually, you don't need to chart a way for the future. There's nothing glorious about smoking to your death. It's giving up. Hopelessness in the Bible is always a lack of faith. Always. It's super clear. So what do we place our hope in? We don't place our hope, really, deep down, we don't place our hope in a Christian political victory of any kind. We place it in Jesus's victory from his way. We always place our faith in the way of Jesus and our hope in the one day victory of Jesus, which has already happened on the cross and will happen again on his return. And we live out of faith in the way of Jesus. See, in many, many, many ways, that was the message that Plenty Coup was giving. There is a way to live that is true and good and right, despite anything that happens to the culture around me. And I will cling to that. And so we have these prophets from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel. I mean, think about Jeremiah talks about the new covenant coming. Ezekiel comes about dry bones coming alive. They all proclaim the realities of devastation as for sure. There will be a field of dry bones and it will be both because of us and because of things outside of our control. And yet we hope for God's mercy, goodness, and provision for those that he has chosen. So we are always looking for it in hope. We're always clinging to God. We're always following him in repentance. We're always suffering if necessary. And we always stay committed to his covenant. So what's going to happen is we are going to see in our lifetime 
that there is going to be a ratcheting up of the tension. If anything, you read anything anywhere, 2020 is preparing you. I actually talked to somebody today. She goes, actually, what a gift to our kids. And I go, what are you talking about? What a gift. She goes, they're becoming so flexible. They're becoming so grounded in what's important by being home with their families. They're learning to deal with change at a really young age and not get what they want. Like I'm excited for the future generation of having to deal with COVID. It's really good for them. And there was part of that where I said, I think actually you're, you're right. Like, of course they complain. We complain, everybody complains. But how many people have I known in this season that have gone, I actually finally trying to think about what my life's about. Like what it's for, what I'm doing. Like now that I can't do things the same, I'm thinking what is the purpose of my life. And so Paniku teaches us, as the prophets of Israel teach us, that witness is held onto by faith. The only way we can hold on to our witness, which is to suffer like the king, is to live in original faith. And this gets us to the story of Simon. Okay. So let me read uh, verses 9 through 13. I'm going to try and put things on the screen here a little bit so you guys can connect visually. But Luke chooses here in the story to show us the meeting with Simon. And in some ways, it doesn't seem like it has a lot of continuity at first. It's like, okay, well, here's a little episode about a guy that didn't get it. Why Simon? Let's read the text. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So who, who is Simon? Help me to think about Simon this way. Simon's a celebrity. Simon's a talented, famous, admired person with a lot of influence. What is his temptation? What is Simon's fault? He actually admires the idea of sowing clover. He admires this saving message. He wants to be a savior. I mean, who doesn't want to be a savior? There's always a temptation when somebody is hurting to jump in and save. He wants that power and it appeals to him. But Simon wants it without following in the footsteps of the one who is willing to suffer for the sake of the world. He wants it for his own self-image. And this is what the Bible calls pride. And pride is, as we know, the sin behind all sins. Pride is the root in the garden. It's the root of every sin we make. It is a self-focus. And so in a way, this is like another cautionary tale. And it's not dissimilar from Ananias and Sapphira in that it's about money and power and pride. Simon is consumed with asking himself the question that many of us spend a lot of our day asking ourselves, what does it mean for me? Right? What does this mean for me? They're coming in. The culture is changing. I'm no longer the top man on the totem pole. What does this mean for me? Well, if you can't beat them, join them. But he doesn't change. 
So see, he gets baptized. It says Simon himself believed and was baptized. That's crazy. Because later we find that it doesn't really look like he believed, does he? So perhaps Simon professed belief and was baptized. I know I have an experience with somebody that once went to this church where they professed belief and were baptized, but this does not mean that they believed. But it still meant, I mean, somebody professes belief, like let's baptize them, right? That's some view of it. I, well, who am I to invade? God's working on this person. And so this actually shows us the story that we understand if we've ever experienced that. Simon's standing here and it's like, you know, there's a seminar going on. Who wants to work miracles and save lives in 60 minutes or less? And Simon's like, pick me. I want to sit in that seminar, right? I want to learn that. If I can learn that in an hour, yeah, baptize. do whatever you need to do. Like, I want to be able to do that stuff. But what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to photocopy his faith. He just wants to put it on like a garment. Now, you might say, uh, I'm not consumed with money or I'm not consumed with power. I'm just not like that. But actually, this is why heaven bound saints can get poisoned by heaven. Now, what do I mean by that? There are a lot of people who go, why, why are you a Christian? Well, I, I, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to die. Like, I want to live forever. How is that not pride? How is that not self-focus? So what I'm not saying that all heaven-bound saints, I'm not saying that people are interested in heaven. I'm saying that some people are in it for the ticket to heaven. This is an insurance plan, and they get poisoned by that. The litmus test of your faith might be better put, would you follow Jesus because he is Lord, even if there was no promise of heaven? I mean, that's intense. If you weren't going to live in heaven forever, would you still do it? Think about it. Would I still suffer? Would I still live this way? Would I still be a minority by choice? Would I still have values that alienate other people, according to them? Would I still do that if I'm not going to live forever? Maybe that could challenge us. Now, in God's grace, he has promised heaven to us. I'm just saying as a hypothetical exercise, think about it. Maybe it will help you repent for something. Maybe there's a fear in my life. Oh, I'm actually living because I'm just scared to die. William Barclay says, Christians ought to deserve the spirit of God, ought, ought to desire the spirit of God more than money. We know that. But if we ought to desire the spirit of God more than our own life, we say, I'm out. I'm out. It's getting too real. This is too hard. So we can relate to Simon. We can relate. I haven't watched this show. I don't think I will. Um, I watched a trailer for it because I heard about it called The Righteous Gemstones. It's just completely making fun of Christianity. It's a mockery of the Christian faith. But if we're honest, it's a mockery that's pretty understandable because the vision has been projected out there of a Christian faith that's full of money, loving, greedy, megachurch pastors flying around on jets. 
and the rest of the culture has eaten it for dinner and is pointing rightly the finger at the hypocrisy of this way of living. Now, the word Simon actually got turned into a word called simony, which is a word that means the unworthy buying of ecclesial offices. From this story, Simon the magician got turned into a word that means the unworthy buying of ecclesial offices. This is the image of Simon. This is the image of the heart of Simon the magician. Serving the Lord and themselves is the tagline. It's a brilliant tagline because that's exactly what's happening. I would wager that Christianity, Christendom as a culture, in some part, must experience what we're experiencing now because of that. Because of that hypocrisy. That's what Israel experienced. They were serving the Lord and themselves. It was never that they gave up on Yahweh. It was that they always added themselves on equal standing. And God is a jealous God. The Bible speaks out against this all the time. It does it twice in Acts. We see it first with Ananias and Sapphira. We see it now with Simon the magician. So what can we take from this? God is concerned with a changed heart. This is why Peter and John show up. This is why they, if you notice, Philip's coming in. He's got a group of Christians in a church in Samaria, which is like not a place you would want to be as a Jew. And uh, miraculously, people are becoming Christian. I mean, this is a total miracle. And so Peter and John come in to authorize. They come in to say, we love seeing this. Can we see it for real? Can we see what's really going on? Can we sort of see the response and talk to people one-on-one? -on -one? And there's this really weird experience. If you've read this text and thought about it, you go, wait a second, you've got people getting baptized, but then like the spirit's not in them. So let's look at, let's look at this text here. 14 through 17, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's really odd, right? I was reading about this for a while. The general take on this is that this is not a normative experience. For instance, you do not need to worry that the Spirit did not come into you and there was some fluke when you got baptized. But yet, in this time and in this culture, it's a little bit like, um, this is the analogy I would use. So I brew beer, right? And when you brew beer, you have to put yeast into it. And the yeast has to sort of take over completely and multiply and survive. But if there's bacteria, if you're not sterile technique and you've got other bacteria, it will kill the yeast and it will take over. So especially at the beginning, it's really important that things be sterile and good so that the yeast can multiply. The early church was vulnerable. It was fragile. Peter and John come into Samaria to a brand, this is the first time the church has left Jerusalem, Judea, and they come into a foreign place full of hostile forces. And they say, let's check and make sure 
Let's use some sterile technique. Let's come in and let's baby this yeast and make sure that it's gonna multiply. Because at a certain point, you don't have to worry about it so much. It's gonna fight the bacteria on its own. And in fact, you don't even have to worry about sterile technique after a while because the yeast has so taken over that it just fends for itself. If you have a, this is a great analogy for a church. If you have a really healthy church, at some point the pastor doesn't have to be as in everything because people fend for themselves. They know the scriptures, they know the gospel, they have the spirit in them. And so what's happening in this story is somewhat uniquely, Peter and John are coming in and they are saying, looks good, spirit's coming in. We don't, by the way, we, like we don't have that power. This is an apostolic power. They come in, they bring the spirit into people, but you will realize something in this story. As you read it, Simon gets left out. He doesn't get the spirit. Like they come and they bring the spirit and usher it in. They are conduits, right? They don't have the power to do it. They stand there and Jesus through them, through the Holy Spirit, brings the spirit into people because Peter and John are integrated with Jesus. They are aligned with him. And he can align with all of those who profess belief in whom, who have repented and believed. But the, but the contrast really illustrates something super important, and that is that Simon's heart is not right. He could profess belief and be baptized, but because he had the wrong heart, the spirit was not in him. So the application for this for us in some way is don't get confused by names. Don't get, look at people's hearts. We all know this on some deep level, but we can start to forget. They'll go, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, we're good. It's like, no, look at your heart. Look at the actions of a person. Look at what they believe. Watch how they behave and what they value. Peter and John, watch what Simon how he behaves and what he wants and his desires. And they say, uh-uh, spirit ain't in you, man. Like we need to talk. And it's because Simon's heart condition is filled with pride. Look at the next passage. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. What does the heart look like that is full of thinking and consumed with thinking about itself and what this means for me? It's full of bitterness and captive to sin. Another word for that is full of iniquity. And I looked that up. It's full of immoral and grossly unfair behavior. But the root of it is bitterness, hopelessness, not seeing a future and a good life for me out of this. So I'm out. I'm out of this shtick. I'm not going to do this. It won't work out for me. I'm not going to follow the way. I'm bitter. I don't get what I want unless I go in and I grab it. It's just like the Garden of Eden. 
Over and over this theme of pride, we can illustrate with the fruit of the tree. Simon saw that it was good and took. That's essentially what 18 and 19 say right there. Let me see if I can find them and put them on the screen. Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. If that isn't seen and taking, I don't know what is. And so what this text tells us is essentially this story. You have two men in prison. Both must endure long and incredible pain. Both must miss a great deal and mourn a great deal. But we all know that there are two such types of people that live in, that can do that in prison. We hear stories of them time and time again. There are those who redeem the time and there are those who waste it. There are those who come out changed. There are those who come out repentant, constructively have used the time to educate themselves, to reform their character, to address their, their pain and travel to joy and a new route to life. And there are the, for those that fall prey to the pain and continue to victimize themselves saying, it's your fault, you did it, it's the system, it's this, it's that. They grow in hate and bitterness and bad actions. So on the one hand, we have a repentant sinner and the other, we have one who is just using the same old tactics. And what's amazing is that in the church, you have both. In the church, we have both. So we have to be wise. Wise as serpents, right? Gentle as doves. Verse 22, Peter says, repent, therefore, repent, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that it, if, is, if it is possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. He says this, Jesus is the only antidote for your deepest, darkest pain. The root of your bitterness can be healed by Jesus. But in order to do that, you must come to the end of your ways, which for Simon means not giving him what he wants. Simon can't get what he wants because he won't come to the end of his ways if he gets what he wants. So Simon has asked for something that he's not ready to receive. Simon must first let go of the spotlight in order to receive Jesus. Can he do it? Will he do it? For those of us who identify with Simon, what is it that is going to bring us to the end of our ways, to the end of ourself? What is it that we want so much that if we don't get it, we won't think life is worth living? And how can God free us from that so that when we have Jesus, we are whole? That means without anything else. This is radical, you guys. It's so radical, but it's so important. Jesus does not want to take away your kids. Jesus does not want to take away your job. But we must let go of all of it to follow Jesus. And then in his grace, trust me, he will shower you with blessings. But when you hold on to that, like Simon. You may have a story like his. And we don't exactly know how the story ends. That's the really tough part of the story. This is a cautionary tale without a clear ending. It goes like this. Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me 
so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned. It's like it doesn't give you the end. Like what happens to Simon? If he says, pray to the Lord for me so that I might not have bad things happen to me. Is that fear? Is he taking ownership? Is he asking them to pray for them? Does Simon later pray a prayer of repentance? We just don't know. We just don't know. So don't be quick to judge Simon either. That's another part of the story. We don't have the answer. It's so easy when we judge a character in the story to say, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. To lose any sense of compassion. I know they're actors. I have to have compassion for that preacher, that that is caricaturing. I have to have compassion. I have to hope that they will see their hypocrisy, that it will be revealed to them. They will somehow come to the end of their life in, in their deathbed, whatever, that they will come to the end of that way of seeing that they can have it both and that they will come to Jesus. Because you got to remember, Simon just wants to be the savior without the suffering. And that's what's going to do him in unless he can get okay with the pain. Patrick Schreiner was a, a teacher at Western Seminary and he was an elder at a church down the street in Portland. He's since moved. But he wrote an article in Christianity Today about this, this very passage. And he used Simon as a similar example to, and at this time, this was pre-pandemic, the conversion of hip-hop mogul Kanye West, right? Kanye became a Christian, diehard Christian, released an album, Jesus is King, right? Like, vocal. And he said, this is a helpful image of Simon the Magician. This is a helpful way for us to apply this text and say, okay, he professes belief. He's saved. He's talking about it. Maybe still egocentric as ever. Maybe he's saying Jesus is Lord, but he's still kind of saying I'm Lord. But we don't have Peter and John to confirm what it is with him. So Schreiner urges compassion, wisdom, not buy it hook, line and sinker, but desire for Justin Bieber, for Kanye West, desire for the influence that they could have for the kingdom if they knew Jesus. Want that. Hear it and not be jaded. I, I mean, I've heard so many responses that like, yeah, yeah, that happens all the time. John, you're going to buy that, right? I don't think that's the right heart either. I'm not saying I'm buying it 100%. I'm saying have compassion and hope for Simon the magician. Have compassion and hope for yourself and your own soul. Okay, we got to wrap up. What are the applications from this? What, what do we have to do to commit to change? We've talked, this is sort of a two-parter with last week. We've talked about this journey from pain to joy. I just want to remind us two things, two practical reasons not to worry so much about this pain because we will worry. I mean, you're thinking, John, when are you going to stop with these suffering sermons? When are you going to stop with this pain stuff? I'll just tell you, like, this is what God's been teaching me for the last two years is like, learn it, John, own it, get it. Learn how to choose joy every morning, despite anything else. Nothing else matters. You can wake up and choose joy today because of Jesus. 
It doesn't matter if it's rainy, sunny. It doesn't matter if you're seasonally defected. It doesn't matter if the kids are going to be at home next week. It doesn't matter if there's fires. It doesn't matter if your church is pretty empty. It doesn't matter. Choose joy. We need joyful people in the world. The journey with Jesus is a sure route to good. I believe that with every fiber of my being. It is good. It is a good way to live. And we can live it for the rest of our life. And we can teach our kids to live it regardless of what they learn in public school. Regardless of our city. Regardless of our downtown. We can be followers of Jesus. And so long as we stick with it, we will succeed. James Clear writes, he's just a secular leadership expert. He goes, here's the thing about experts. As soon as you get off the road, it doesn't matter how much of an expert you were, you won't be an expert anymore as soon as you get off the road. But here's the other thing. As a beginner, as long as you're on the worry, you're on the road, no worries. Just stay on the road and you'll become an expert. Isn't that true? Don't look left. Don't look right. Stay on target. Three ways, very quick, three ways that we can take this on. Remind ourselves that we need godly leadership. We need to be taking our instructions from God. Then move that, make that original and personal into self-leadership. This is where many of us struggle. Some of us struggle with the godly leadership. Some of us have pretty good godly leadership. We're reading the Bible, we're around Christians, we're taking their wisdom, we're, we're getting the right facts. We struggle to implement it. We're struggling with changing habits. We're struggling with addressing our pain issues and the reasons we get distracted. We're struggling with all those things because we're not using the discipline for self-leadership. Brene Brown wrote a book called Dare to Lead. She had a history of alcoholism. She's become an incredibly articulate, gifted, successful speaker. She's a Christian. She says, our lack of self-awareness and ability to be in pain constructively is directly proportional to the amount of pain we cause in the world. But if you can't be brave, you can't lead. And if you can't be brave, if you're tapping out of hard conversations about painful, hard topics, that's what it means to lead. That's why there are so few courageous leaders. She goes, not drinking was the easier part. Doing the fearless inventories of who I am, how I tap out of pain, how I cause other people be pain because I'm not willing to be clear since I don't want to be disliked or disappoint people. That was the real work. Self-inventories, self-leadership. So just a quick application for us. Confession and cohort does matter, but not if you don't take home new habits to implement. If you go and you confess your heart out and you go and you go, oh, that was so cathartic. I feel so much better. We have such good people in our church. They're so affirming and loving of me. Next day, exact same sin pattern. Like, that's not what it's for. Like, that's not what God wants for you. He's asking for you to see it, repent, and believe. Believe is an act of living self-leadership. But here's the deal. I've done that. And I've been totally miserable about it. Ugh, I hate this. I, get, I just gotta do this. God just doesn't want me to have anything fun. Nothing fun. I never get a break, right? We have to do it joyfully and then we can have others leadership. Now, I'm not saying that the first two have to be bulletproof to get to the third one. This is more like braiding. You have three strands. 
They're coming together, they're overlapping. You're going to go to God when you're trying to lead others. You're going to realize when you're leading others, you're leading them astray and you're gonna to have to deal with self-leadership. These are like a braid, but realize that they're all part of what it means to engage in outreach, to be witnesses. All right, I just wanna read two passages. This is like our closing prayer. So just pray with me. I'm gonna read two passages of scripture over us. Here we go. Ezekiel 38, 22. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Is it not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things? But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them, then the nations will know that I am Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into the, your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will bring my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. When Jesus went to the cross, he did it for his name's sake. That's why he did it. Didn't matter what happened. Didn't matter how painful it was. He did it. Didn't matter if his disciples all abandoned him because it was for the sake of the reputation of God. God will do that for us and he will not fail. And he asks us to do that along with his son.